Before we launch into our normal intro, I suppose a few words of explanation are in order. The show you're about to hear was recorded about a year ago with the three of us, regular hosts, and Mike Mason. It was recorded on our old equipment. Ah, uh, the good old Yeti. I remember those days. Yes. <laughs> you might hear a slight difference in quality. Just a bit. And some of the things that we discuss are probably now out of date. Uh, since our discussion, Chaosium is under new management. So this is somewhat of a leap into the past. Yes. This was recorded at a time when we sincerely believed that the 7th edition books were about to be released, or at least were at the printers and, and about to be released. We, we obviously since found out that, that wasn't the case, but we've held back on this episode until the books were actually in Backer's hands, because it, it just seemed reasonable to do that. It, it seemed unfair to talk about 7th edition in this kind of detail when most people didn't actually have it. As part of our Patreon campaign, we usually say a thanks to some new backers at the end of the show. Uh, that doesn't really fit with these two upcoming shows that we recorded over a year ago, so we're going to put those off until we resume normal service after these two shows. And without further ado... Here's a Japanese Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dorwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. Hello, I'm Mike Mason. Yes, we have Mike with us again to talk about... What are you talking about, Mike? Uh, Call of Cthulhu, 7th edition. Yeah, just for a change. But specifically, we're talking about how did Call of Cthulhu 7th edition happen? How did it come about? How was it developed? And this is yeah, a rare chance, I think, you know, for people to hear the behind-the-scenes story. It's a Jackson Elias expose. <laughs> you didn't tell me that before. Uh, now you're here, Mike, there's no escape. Can, I, can you lighten the handcuffs a little? <laughs> before we get into that, though, let's jump into our Lovecraftian word of the week. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. What's the word, Matt? One of my favourites, Cyclopean. Relating to or suggestive of a cyclops. A great cyclopean monocle. Was that in the dictionary, Scott, or did you add that? <laughs> that was in the dictionary. Wow. Secondly, very big, huge. He has a cyclopean ego. Of or constituting a primitive style of masonry characterised by the use of massive stones of irregular shape and size. And I think it's that third definition primarily that Lovecraft used. I mean, almost every time in his stories that I can think of when he uses the word cyclopean, he is referring to architecture or masonry. Yeah, that's how I've understood it to be. Yeah, certainly. When I was a young Lovecraft reader reading him for the first time, I sort of assumed that he was using it to mean big, because that was the context in which I'd encountered the word before. And I didn't realise you know, in those days that it actually re referred to a kind of architecture. 
But that actually makes a lot more sense in context. I'd always visualised it as being uh, parallel to ancient, not just anything well, kind of, small as huge. It kind of gives the, the feeling of ancient and, uh, and, and huge at the same time, but not yes. necessarily ancient. See, when I was a kid, and this first time I read Lovecraft, and I obviously didn't bother looking in the dictionary, I read it, Psychopean, and in my head I had these visions of these spiralling, almost tentacle-like structures, and that's what I took it to be at oh, the time. That's much cooler. <laughs> From Dagon, across the chasm, the wavelets washed the base of the Cyclopean monolith, on whose surface I could now trace both inscriptions and crude sculptures. And from the Call of Cthulhu, behind the figure was a vague suggestion of a Cyclopean architectural background. And from the shadow of Rinsmith, Great watery spaces opened out before me, and I seemed to wander through titanic sunken porticos and labyrinths of weedy cyclopean walls, with grotesque fishes as my companions. Our first question to Mike and Paul. Why change Call of Cthulhu? But let's start with the big question then. Call of Cthulhu has been around largely unchanged for 34 years. It's probably, more than any other game, the least changed in its various incarnations. So why, after 34 years, should it be changed at all? I don't think it came out of a conscious decision to change Call of Cthulhu. It came out of us talking about doing a game. I remember it was early 2008 before Bob and Becky's wedding. Remember the one in the woods? Yes. I'd been listening to loads of podcasts about the whole indie game thing and uh, I was kind of interested in doing some, some rules. And was that the time we were working on Cthulhu Britannica? Quite possibly. Yeah, I think it would have yeah. been around then. So we'd been working on the supplement Cthulhu Britannica for um, Cubicle 7. And I think I was sending you some a draft of some rules that I'd worked on, but not for Call of Cthulhu, just for, for well, I don't know, for my own enjoyment or, or just something that it was maybe never going to come to anything. Yeah, wasn't this sort of the basis of the push mechanics of this? Yeah. Stage? Mike, you sort of said, oh, you know, why don't we put this forward to Cozy and put it to them as a, as a seventh edition? Yeah, you, you're remembering it better than I. But, yeah, that sounds right from my memory now you kind of said it like that. And we, we met up at Bob and uh, Becky's wedding and sort of talked it over. And then a few months later or a month or two later, quite soon after, there was, uh, there was a continuum when we met up with Charlie Crank. That's right. I mean, I'll take a step, a step back from sure. that as well and sort of say I'd spoken to Charlie in the years previous to the continuum year you're talking about, Paul. Mm. In, in that, so um, two years previous, yeah. So two years previously and... I think before then, maybe in Germany at uh, the Tentacles Convention. And I'd asked, I, among other people, actually, at uh, various sort of um, seminars we'd done with Charlie, had asked about, is there going to be a new edition of Call of Cthulhu? Or just the question of when the new edition of Call of Cthulhu is coming out? Because there, there was a sort of a, some sort of expectation that at some point a new edition would come out and 6th edition had been out in various formats, 6, 6.1, and um, for some years... And I, I remember asking Charlie the question directly and saying, you know, are you thinking of doing a, a new edition at any point? And he had said, yes, I, I definitely want to do a new edition. 
And that had stuck in my head for a couple of years. And in the back of my mind, I said, oh, well, that would be kind of cool to work on. And I, but I hadn't really taken it any further. And I think it was the um, Paul then talking about doing you know some rules and working it. And they kind of clicked in my head, thinking, well, actually, could we combine these and actually... Mm. One fulfills something that Charlie needed. He said he wanted a new set of, you know, a, a revised rule book, and it kind of seemed to marry with some of the stuff that Paul was coming out with in terms of some of the mechanics. It seemed to be, well, that might actually fit and actually work really well with Call of Cthulhu without it, you know, radically being a different game. So I think these kind of things kind of congeal together. Yeah. yeah, because Call of Cthulhu, you know, as you said, it got up to you know second edition, but the changes between editions at that stage have been very minimal. I mean, there have been quite a lot of changes in terms of support material and new chapters added that explain various aspects of the game and, and the background <coughs> and so on. But in terms of mechanical changes, a few uh, skills had changed, and there were a couple of things that were explained a bit different. But fundamentally, there's there's not really any major difference between first and sixth edition, is there? No. I think it's also how you approach this question and how you term the question. Um, because I don't think me and Paul set out to change the rules. I don't think necessarily we came, we said, you know, we're going to completely change the game. That wasn't, I don't think, our intent was to change Call of Cthulhu into a completely different game, necessarily. Um, it was more, It was a case of, certainly from where, where I started, it was a case of actually redrafting the rule book and refining and trying to solve any potential issues that you know I and other people I you know play with and familiar with had encountered with the Call of Cthulhu rule set things like grappling which no one anywhere could seem to agree on how it should work so it seemed to me that that was an issue and why couldn't we just get a rule that made that work without you know so whilst change is included um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that change wasn't the headline I think it was probably more for me I think maybe we come at it from different angles yeah. Mike and you you, having worked for Games Workshop and so on, had got experience of doing role-playing books and uh, particularly core rule books and so on prior to that. So you had more of that kind of overview of the whole book and the production of it on, and, and, the, and the structuring of it. I, I guess I was more looking at modifications to the rules and changes to the rules whilst wanting to keep it Call of Cthulhu. That, that, was, that was the bit that I was really interested in, essentially, were the rules. The rest of it I wasn't so bothered about. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think. Yeah, I think that, that's why. Yeah, we looking back, it. I think that's that. That's you're absolutely right. And I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I don't think. I think people can read change to have a number of meanings, and I think that's what I'm trying to point out is the fact I don't think you know. I, you, whilst you say yeah, you were interested in looking at the rules, and developing and and, and you know changing them to some mm. degree, some people could hear that and say. Oh, so you went in to change things. Mm, and yeah. I don't think you did, is what I'm trying to say. I think you went in to say you played Call of Cthulhu for 20-plus years, you really love the game, and it works 99% of the time. However, there were things in the game that you thought, actually, I could develop, um, refine, change, if you will, yeah, yeah. Um, that will make it flow better. And I think, and, and that's kind of where I see change the meaning of change being because i think some people might hear this and think we set out to write wanted, a new role-playing game to put your which own we, stamp on it we didn't yeah, we, which yeah we didn't set out yeah. to write a new role-playing game in this particular project and going back to your first question scott about where it came from and giving you credit in this as well so 
I was looking through the timeline on, on my backups on my computer yesterday, some of which I've got and some of which I haven't, and some of which, some of which are such old files now I can't even open them <laughs> when I came to look at them. They won't even open with the software I've got now. Back in 2005, uh, you and I, Scott, were discussing rule sets because we were both sort of very into the whole indie games movement and, and looking at um, new games, and we were both into Call of Cthulhu. I was more in, well, actually, to rephrase yeah. that, I was I was really into Call of Cthulhu, and with Mike, uh, you know, running uh, Cult of Keepers, I was really active in the whole sort of kind of Call of Cthulhu and writing yeah. scenarios and so on. Whereas, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd been a long-time Call of Cthulhu fan, but I'd sort of grown a bit dissatisfied with it. Yeah, I mean, you, you, I think you'd kind of sworn off almost playing Call of Cthulhu again. I, well, I'd sworn off playing campaigns because I played a, yeah, a couple of campaigns, one with you, one with Robin, which yeah. I didn't really enjoy very much. I enjoyed playing the one-shots, particularly yeah. with the Cult of Keepers. But I, I don't know, I found that the rules at the time weren't really scratching the itch that I had. And I found a document which you had written, which opened almost the same as the one you just read out just now, which said, Call of Cthulhu was written 24 years ago, but it remains almost unchanged. It's almost word for word what you just <laughs> said, minus 10 years. And you and I kind of talked about you know, doing a new version of Call of Cthulhu. And we talked to, and you suggested putting it to Charlie Crank at Chaosium mm. and seeing if he would accept this this version. But we were thinking of designing it almost from the ground up and a yeah. very different vision for it. Yeah, something and much I more think, radical. And I think there's two two things that, that didn't really work. One was that we were both very much into how the rules would change and had different takes on that. Whereas the relationship that Mike and I had was 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 quite Mike had a sort of came at the rule book from quite a different angle. Whereas we were both coming at it from, you know, trying to fill the same niche. Yes. I yeah, think I think, I think I, as, yeah, what you're saying is Paul. It was more quickly definable that Paul could do these things yes. and I would do these things, and we wouldn't. And whilst, you know, we could both contribute to either side of that, it was clearly that Paul can get on and do that. Well, I get on and do this. Yes. Yeah. And and it would marry probably a bit more easily, I guess. I think so, yeah, yeah. And I think if we'd have pursued it, Scott, well, we kind of talked about it and then it kind of yeah, fizzled, fizzled out, out and then we tried to get it going again and it fizzled out again. It just didn't have legs with me and you doing it for, yeah. for whatever reason. That kind of laid the seed in me for sort of trying to do something with the rules. And I've got a note here that in, in 2006 at the club, I'd kind of altered the way I was running Call of Cthulhu and bought in the pushing mechanic. And um, I'd got Neil Neil Smith in, in the game with me playing Call of Cthulhu. Yeah, that's not something that happens Let very often. Said. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I presented him with the opportunity to, to push and sort of say what he wanted to do. And Edward said to me, I, I wasn't expecting to be setting stakes in Call of Cthulhu. What's going on? And he kind of liked it, but... He, it, and that, that kind of rang a bell with me. Oh, well, this is something a bit different. Yeah, whereas when I first kind of saw pushing when you presented it to me, Paul, I think I saw it as as something that I and and other people I was aware of, I didn't call it that and probably didn't use it in quite the same way, but something that we house-ruled a lot. You know, somebody failed a role. It was like, mm. well, have another go. But just having another go didn't feel quite right. It just that kind of felt like cheating, really. So it was kind of trying to build it into a game sense. So sometimes when it seemed appropriate, there was a kind of like, well, have another role because I guess you're taking longer to do this or something like that. Yeah. And so it seemed to me, actually, well, that seems to me not so much of a big change. It seems more of a, as I would say, more of a refinement and, a, and, a, and a, an expansion of what's already there. And so I thought, yeah, I think that could fit. Yeah, it was, it was very much trying to 
create an evolution of the existing mechanics, I think. But, but I think this was also something that was creeping more and more into formalised RPG design at the time. The idea that you know, failure didn't just mean that nothing happened, that there would be consequences for failing, or you know, the, the whole idea of failing forward, that, that it would generate story. Much like Apocalypse Sword generates, because that's one of the first instances where I came across that. Yeah, I'd, I'd certainly encountered it in a number of other games before then, but yes, yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, Apocalypse World, I think, is a, a yeah, perfect example of, of taking that to an extreme, and I think it does it beautifully. Mm. And it's interesting to hear you say, Mike, that about the backstory before we start, because I don't know if we've really talked about that before. Well, right? I don't think we have. No. no. <laughs> so we'd both been sort of thinking about doing a 7th uh, edition rules prior to kind of getting together and doing it. Yeah, I, th- I think that's true. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think it was a confluence of things happening that kind of um, brought that together. And obviously, you know, you go if you want to go really back, you know, obviously, you know, we we sort of got to know each other more through um, the Call to Keepers, which yeah. obviously everyone in part of that was encouraged to write stuff. And so, um, I mean, I don't know if you were writing stuff before then in terms of role-play stuff, but certainly the Call to Keepers, you went straight in and started writing stuff for that. So again, I think our relationship has always been around, to some degree, some extent of you know um, creating things and writing and doing stuff like that. So I think that kind of helped as well, probably. Yeah, I think that's what got me on the on the way. Really, I'd ri- written the odd um, bits and pieces here and there, but uh, well, this was about contemporary with you doing Gatsby and the Great Race, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, you and I, well, the three the three of us were kind of involved with Gatsby and the Great Race first. First with Mike with the Cult of Keepers, and then with Scott with editing the the monograph for Chaosium. That was two thousand and five. That was ten years yeah. ago, and that was around the time that you know we then started thinking Scott. We started thinking about a, a new edition of Call of Cthulhu. Yes, um, and then we did. Like I say, because they do Britannica and, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other thing I'd say in terms about looking at the potential for, for doing a new edition of Call of Cthulhu, certainly from my perspective, one of the reasons I thought Cthulhu could do with a new edition was that, that over the years, the as, as Scott said, the, the, the editions have been tweaked here and there and, and but, you know, fairly minor things, but but effectively new stuff has been added. Over the years, that, that new material is a, was respect, was poured into the rule book Um but it was never really rewritten into the rule book. So you had sections that were bolted in, like a whole you know, page or two pages of spot rules for combat, which rather than being rewritten into the combat chapter, were just, you know, were put in as a separate section. Um, and I felt actually it would be a much more useful and user-friendly tool if those those kind of rules were actually all the all the accumulation of rules over the years, which had happened, were actually just taken back and just rewritten. You know, and you know, and obviously, as you went through the rules, you could obviously refine them further if needed. And um, so, I, I felt the actual structure and, and format and flow of the rulebook justified doing a new edition. And I think there was a further wrinkle to that in that there were a number of rules that were probably introduced in scenarios and supplements that people had come to incorporate into their game style. The one that really sticks with me was difficulty levels in games. Quite often, I'd see things in scenarios and sort of roll against half your spot hidden or roll a spot hidden minus 30 or something like that. And people, almost every uh, Call of Cthulhu Keeper I'd encountered did this to some extent. And it was something of a shock to me going back afterwards and looking through the rules and realising it wasn't actually in there. Yeah, yeah. there's a lot of stuff that's done around the gaming table that, that seemed to be common practice for nearly every Call of Cthulhu group that, that actually that isn't in the book. Isn't in the rule book. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and so it, and they struck me that, well, actually, that's a rule that everyone uses. Why, so, why so many times you in? come up with things and put them to people and they still say, oh, well, I'll do that anyway. Yeah. Say, well, <laughs> yeah, but it's not in the rules. Another bit of inspiration for me actually came from Charlie Crank. Uh, I was listening to an interview with him and he was said one thing about the rules. He said, it's very easy just to halve your skill and make it a hard difficulty role, but that's not in the rules. And that's kind of a shame that we didn't put it in. And I, and I thought then, you know, well, why not? You know, that, that should be in there. And that was kind of, that opened the way, really, to the whole levels of difficulty thing. So you talk about that as influencing one of the changes you made there or one of the new rules. What other kind of influences did you have? What other things inspired some of the specific changes in Call of Cthulhu? Are we talking other games that inspired or whatever? Uh, other games, yeah. things that happened at the gaming table... Playing Dogs in the Vineyard with you, Scott, um, back around that time when it came out, we were playing it kind of early 2000s, you know. Yeah, really around was that, that time. long ago, wasn't it? <laughs> and um, we were playing that a lot. And one conflict in there where we were arguing with our characters, arguing with a blacksmith. And the argument, I don't think, it, there was a threat of violence, but it didn't actually escalate, perhaps, to, to violence, because in that game, you start off with a verbal confrontation, and then you can choose to raise it to a physical confrontation, then you can choose to raise it to a gunfight, or, you know, through those steps. And by choosing to up, the, to escalate the, the situation, you escalate the consequences. And we didn't get to, to gunplay, and I'm not even sure if we got to physical, but the, the threat of it was m more tangible than, than most combats that I've played in other games mm. and the back and forth that we had between us and the and the and the blacksmith just felt like more of a more of a struggle more of a fight than than you know any D&D &D fight that I'd played and I want and I was trying to think well how you know a lot of Call of Cthulhu is about um, verbal conflicts, it's, you know, it's not just about gunplay and, no, and you're, physical. You're, yeah, as an investigator, you're trying to get information out of people, uh, you're trying to investigate things under dangerous circumstances and so on, and this should be exciting, as exciting as any gunfight. And it was that option to escalate a situation by your own volition. So I've tried, I'm not getting anywhere, am I going to try harder? Because if I do... I could end up hurting myself, I could end up shaming myself, I could end up put, making the situation a lot worse for myself if I try. And that's what I wanted to try and emulate, and that's where the pushing role came from. Yeah. And initially, the pushing role, you could you, you could fail, and you could say how you were going to push. Do you remember this, Mike? Yeah, yeah. And, and then if you failed again, the GM would kind of make the situation worse, and then you could you could push again. And oh, you keep going, no, yeah, yeah. There was no defined end to that. I guess the end was, you know, you, you'd end you, up you dying die, because yeah. of the consequences would well, get so bad. But I, that actually, might take actually, no, I think seven did, or eight pushes. I did think you had it formalised at some stage that by the time you got to about the fourth or the fifth push, your life was on the line. I seem to remember one iteration where that was the case. Right, okay. Yeah, I've got some vague memory of that, but I do remember one that was, and it was, I, I remember thinking like that, you just keep going. Yes. And wh wh how, do, how does that... How, would that work in would practice? That work? You know, yeah, would that really yeah. work? And that's, yeah. that's, that's something, I think, when you're designing rules, there's a, there's a danger that you sit down and you think through in your own head what could happen and you come up with these hypothetical situations and you extrapolate just mentally on, on what you're thinking about and, that, and those things would never actually happen in a game. 
but they happen in your head and you, you can make rules for them. Yeah. And then you, you put it on the table and you see that all this crap doesn't really work and you need to just pair it back and back and back and keep the same principle. And eventually I remember chatting to you on the phone and I said, well, let's just have it, you just push once. Mm. And, and then you push once and if you fail it, you get hit with a really bad consequence. Well, depending on what the situation is. Yeah. But yeah. the keeper yeah. has license to hit you with a bad consequence. I, and, and, and then the story moves on. Yeah, yeah. because yeah, I, I think both of us were, were, were worried that you could get into the, one of these situations, you could take it completely over the gaming session. Yeah. And actually, the story would be completely thrown out of the window because the focus would be on this particular confrontation or conflict. And um, I think we were both unsettled by that because I think that that both we both knew that that wasn't the purpose of this. It was, yeah. you know, and equally in those levels of difficulty, there were lots of levels of difficulty. Yeah. So I started off with you obviously got your full skill, and then you got the half uh, because that was the hard role, like Charlie had suggested, and then you got the fifth because that made kind of logical sense because your characteristics multiplied by five, um, often for for a you know, to turn your characteristics into a skill role. So there was that, that fifth or multiplying by five kind of ratio. Um, but then I kind of extrapolated that and went down to sort of smaller and smaller levels. So if you were on a high percentage, it would get gradually smaller and smaller. And eventually, you know, again, <laughs> in theory, that kind of made sense, but in practice it didn't. And, and we just ended up chopping those out and saying, okay, well, you've got your full skill, you've got your half skill, and you've got your fifth skill, nothing else. Yes, yeah. I think one of the other influences in terms of working on, on the new edition, um, certainly for me, uh, and I was always conscious of this in the background, but I, I mean, it was it had to remain remain Call of Cthulhu. Yeah. And it had to remain the same game. It had to play effectively the same way in terms of the experience you were getting. You should be able to use what's been published for Call of Cthulhu with, with these rules, because you know, we weren't setting out to create a completely brand new role-playing game. Um, so I think that was always certainly you know the back of my mind, and um, but it, it was one of the things I remember consciously thinking. Well, I'm not going to keep saying that to Paul because if you are trying to develop rules, you don't want to necessarily limit the creativity side because it, it's quite a constraining thing. And I think it's better to just kind of look at how things are developed and then does that fit the the general mould of does this still feel like Call of Cthulhu? Yeah. And when it did, you know, say that's great, and when it didn't, say I think this still needs working on, and actually, you know, and I, I thought that would be a, a healthy way to work rather than just keep saying no, Paul, that's not going to work. No, no, that's not going to work, Paul, or, or whatever. No, you you were very you good at kind of steering me in the right direction on that. I think in in a way it would have been easier just to make a new game. Oh, it would have been so much easier. It's been so much easier just to yeah. do any you know just a new horror game, um, you know, with with new totally fresh mechanics. Whether you try and call it Call of Cthulhu or not. Um, that would have been a hard sell, but the point was that it started off wanting to make a game, but basically I, my first love in game was Call of Cthulhu, and that's the game I wanted to, to work on. Um, so everything kind of became, all the ideas had to be kind of, the motivation and the aim of them had to remain the same, but the, the way they were implemented had to be tortured until they kind of fitted the, the Call of Cthulhu mould, really. Were there any specific changes that you had to make to your ideas in order to keep it feeling like Call of Cthulhu? No, I think there were was, there was times where the rules would were starting to go off in one way, which, if you take yourself out of the Call of Cthulhu, as Paul said, were kind of great rules, you know, they, I, could see, I could see they would work. 
but I could also see that they wouldn't necessarily work well in Call of Cthulhu. And can, can you think of any specific examples? I'm trying to think. Well, there was one time, I remember having a conversation about combat and where you, you effectively could devolve combat down into a single couple of die rolls. Oh, yeah. yeah. And you could say, well, you could do a combat in, in two seconds. Yeah. Do this roll and the combat's done. And uh, and I could say and I and I remember saying well that sounds great I could see how that could work really well and it would speed the flow of the game. However, it the, doesn't. You know, there, there was a whole thing I've got about scaling. You got kind of human scale combatants and then things that were more vulnerable, which in the Call of Cthulhu game not many, uh, <laughs> and then the things that were kind of a step up from there, maybe deep ones, and then things that were a step up from there, maybe ghouls and so on. Then maybe you know, and then you sort of step up to. I don't know, um, dimensional shamblers, and then you step up a few more steps and you shoggoths and so on. And there was kind of a scale of, of adversaries, and that sort of, you, you just did one role basically, like a skill role, to, to combat those. And I think maybe we play tested that, Scott, in that the That does days. ring a bell, yeah. And you could kind of push your, uh, push the, the combat role, so it was just treated like a skill role yes. um, with, with, in combat, rather than going back to the round by round. Uh, specialist sort of combat section in the rules. So I think that was something at first that I was kind of toying with not having was a special specialist combat rules. Well, in fact, we, we had a conversation about it and I think yeah. we both went off and thought about it. And then I think I think it was you, Paul, you talked, um, you'd mentioned the rules to, um, to Kiri. Yeah. And he came straight back going, it's not granular enough in terms of combat. Yeah. You know, and, and that I think that hit a chord with you um, at that point as well. But I, yeah. yeah, I think that's an interesting point. I mean, if you were designing a Lovecraftian role-playing game today, I mean, combat does appear in Lovecraft stories, just not very often, and it's not the focus. It might be quite tempting to produce a Lovecraftian game with no combat system, or where it's it's created as as just a general part of of you know conflict resolution. But it wouldn't be Call of Cthulhu anymore. Me, you and Kiri round your place watching films one night, Mike. Yeah. <clears throat> I think it was the Friday night, White Russian night, and we'd sat up chatting about this. And I can remember coming downstairs in the morning, and I think you and Kiri were chatting at the table, and it kind of went on a light bulb over my head, and I realised that I wasn't trying to make a Lovecraftian game. This is what you and I had... Yes. This is very much your agenda, Scott, when we yeah. were working together, was it was all about making a Lovecraftian game. And it was almost like... Mike, we weren't trying to make a Lovecraftian game. We were trying to make a Call of Cthulhu game. Yes. Because the yeah. two are quite different. Yes. I think. Yeah, well, that, that, it depends how you look at it, but, but I understand that, what you're trying in, in to the say. Way that, yes. In the way of gaming, the gaming is much more focused on the adventure, on the, uh, you know, on, the, on the fun of it, on the, on, on the horror and so on. The Lovecraftian stories, you know, you've got a single protagonist, often Who quite be passive. Very passive yeah. It borrows from those, but... We're not trying to emulate no, the because model of a Lovecraftian story. And, and again, Love, Love. on the front of the Call of Cthulhu book, I'm not sure if I'm going to paraphrase this quite correctly, but it, it says, you know, game games within well, it, the... It adventures in the universe of In the universe Lovecraft. of H.P. Yeah. Lovecraft. It yeah. doesn't say games recreating the Lovecraftian stories. It's games set in the stories of Lovecraft. Yes. And yeah. I think that's quite... Interesting. No, Lo Lo Lovecraft's yeah. protagonists are observers. They're not active participants. Yeah, and and playing a game like that, yeah, would not be Call of Cthulhu. And I don't think we would have Call of Cthulhu today if the game had been like that in 1981, because I don't think that would have fitted the the role play, you know, mindset of the time. Oh God, no. We, we had an episode about Stuart Gordon's films Beyond and Reanimator. Stuart Gordon, fantastic director, took 
those films. Did he make Lovecraftian films? He made some fantastic films using Lovecraft as his as a source material. And that's what I saw us trying to do with the game, you know, make a, a, a good game or, or modify a good game based on Lovecraft, but using Lovecraft as source material, but not trying to necessarily emulate, you know, Lovecraft story. You know, Reanimator isn't a, a, an emulation of uh, Herbert West Reanimator. No, and it's all the stronger for it. The other influence, certainly in, the, in, in, in my mind, that I saw in what Paul was starting to do you know, as the rules developed, was effectively looking at how, where things could be either streamlined or where better guidance could be given. Two things jump out at me. One is in the um, characteristics, changing them to percentage rolls rather than leaving them as the 3 to 18, um, 3d6 rolls. When you use a characteristic in game, nine out of 10 times, it's because you're timesing it by five to make it into percentage. Mm. So you already, so it was a rule that actually wasn't a new rule. It was a rule that already existed. And it's what you already did. And so to me, to streamline that, was we just say, well, make them characteristics because then you're not bothering with doing maths at the gaming table and you're doing something that you're doing anyway. And that led to, and the consequence of that allowed, you know, Paul came back with, you know, the, 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 the notion of putting in opposed roles for certain actions in the game. Um, which would effectively do away with things like the resistance table, which for me always seemed a strange thing. When you're in the flow of a game, when any time you went to the resistance table was normally because there was an opposed up, uh, an opposition happening, which normally meant a moment of tension or excitement in the game. So at exact, that exact point of excitement in the game, you would stop, open your rule book, look at the resistance table, look at the different things and look at what the percentage was and then make the roll. I mean, the counter-argument to that has always been that you know, a lot of Call of Cthulhu players had learned how to do that in their head. Yeah, and I think some had, and I think an uh, equal amount number didn't and used, yeah. used the table. Yeah, I'm quite happy multiplying and dividing by five, but I've sat at tables with lots of people who aren't. You could guarantee a convention game, you'd sit down and say, OK, it's a, a strength times five roll, and the person could say, oh, uh, what's 17 times five? And then somebody else would have to get their calculator yeah. out or somebody I, else would just jump in and sort of say what it is. But not everybody can do that. No. And it's one of the things that if you can do it, it's, it's sometimes quite hard for you to re- understand that other people don't find it as easy as you. I w- wouldn't really want to dwell on that point too much. That was more of a an added uh, bonus, bonus that people didn't have yeah. to do the mental maths. It's not really, that's not why that's there. It's not no. there to stop people, to save people from having to do the maths. No, it's there it's to just, streamline. It's, it's yeah. a streamlining thing. So rather well, than... Well, it's there because it's practical, because yeah. the, the five times value was much more useful than the than the, the one times, of, of, you know, yeah. the, the 3D6 stat. It, well, it, it, it means things, it spares because things you, up at the table. Because you've got, that, you've got that full skill roll, the half and the fifth, yeah. and the fifth being the same as the, you know, the old man 3D6. The original stat. Yeah. Um, yeah, so again, I, that, that kind of ticked the box for me, as in because it... It didn't take away from the game. It didn't change what happened in the game. And it just actually um, actually streamlined things. So it's, it ticked all the boxes in that respect. But it allowed other things to happen in the game in terms yeah. of rules. And it allowed them to integrate more so with skills. Yeah. And it, it mirrored the Both. fact that the skill system is a percentage system. Yeah. And, you know, um, why? But it, at the same time, I mean, I think talking about it, designing a game from the ground up, you wouldn't design it. You design it such that you generate your full skill value and then halve it and fifth it, like you do with with the, the rest of the skills. 
the, the characteristics, you roll 3d6 and then you multiply it by five and then you halve that, which is a little bit cumbersome on the, on the generation front. But, um, you know, there's no big trouble, but it, it's, it's an artefact of the older rule system. Yeah, but it's also something you only do once during but character it's, generation. Yeah, and it's something that people, experienced players, were used to doing. So I figured... Yeah, and equally, but if you, if, you're, if, you, if you never liked rolling the 3d6 to generate your stat, or you're new to the game and you find that it's too cumbersome for you, that's why at the end of the chapter we put in the optional mechanics. You could do a points value system... And other ways yeah, of doing it, which is version, yeah. a quick fire version and whatnot. So, throughout the rule book, one of the kind of things that I think seemed to me, and I think we talked about this quite a few times, was the fact that it, it should have these optional things and it. it should have this toolkit in it, effectively. Yes. Yeah. I remember talking, we were talking to Charlie about this some time and, and giving people the, the freedom to do what they already do, but you know, to, to modify say, it if, but, if but to wish. also say you don't have to always invent it from scratch. Here's here's what yeah. most people do anyway. It's, it's interesting. I've seen discussions on a number of forums where people have, have looked at these optional rules and sort of said, "Oh yeah, these were all the things that were actually in the rules in the first place that Chaosium made them take them take out." I, I, I've seen that comment come uh, up a few times. Well, that's and not the case. No, no that's the, not the yeah, case. No. I, I think the only change like that, and it's not even Chaosium made you take it out. That from feedback. You, the, that you changed was the you know, making the, the luck spend mechanic optional. And that's the only example of that I can think of. Yeah, we'll come on to luck in a, in a minute. Yeah, but yeah. The, the reason that the you, you're presented with the combat chapter and then an additional toolkit bit at the end with the additional rules, I, I would say there was two reasons there. One was that there were some rules that might you favoured more than I did and maybe vice versa, and that... You know, it was a kind of a compromise of saying, okay, well, that could be an optional rule. Maybe one or two little things in there. Like, like I think the the hit location, yeah. I wasn't keen on. Yeah. You sort of said you felt that was, some people would really favour that. Yeah. And I thought, well, if it's an optional thing, I don't really have a problem with that. Um, but above and beyond that, the reason those rules were taken out and put in a in a kind of a, an additional section at the end was because it made the, the combat chapter easier to grasp. So when I was going through the, the combat rules, when you've got all these little added bits that yeah. you can kind of put in, it, it can, I think it's it, it's easily could confuse Confusing, the reader. Yeah. Well, and they're things that some people might not use anyway. Precisely, yes. So yeah. it, was, it was trying to keep it as easy to grasp as possible and as few complications as possible in the, the main body of the chapters. And then all the little added spices and complications that if you want to put in, you can do, or you can totally ignore them. Yeah, but I, the I, core of the chapter isn't a toolbox. No, I think that's an important thing because you know one thing that long-time Call of Cthulhu fans have always said about BRP is that the system fades into the background. That's what I wanted to combat. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I suppose that's one way of saying though that the rules are fairly simple. Um, by the time you throw in lots of spot rules, if those are compulsory, then you've added a degree of complexity by making it optional. Whether you bring the, that complexity in, and that's that's see that's where I was that was where I was worried about where sixth edition had, had, had kind of become because as I mentioned before, there was a lot of new material had come with new editions, and I, I liken it to being bolted on. So you would have the core rules, and then you would have around the book various spot rules that sometimes were collected together. Um, but not all the spot rules were collected together. And combat, particularly, you would have a page of combat spot rules and then you'd have another spot rule somewhere else in the book. The Keeper's Toolkit. And, and Hidden away. Hidden right away. Back. And um, it just struck me that if you're going to have these in, 
bring them all into you know one space and also the spot rules some of them were you know optional effectively and i just felt well stay how it is here's the core rules then here at the end of the rules chapters are the optional rules which in old language might be called spot rules and if they apply for you if they work for you or bits of them do great if bits of them don't or they don't work for you too great because here's the core rules which are what the basis which is what the basics are and there's none of those um, additional rules at the end that we didn't feel were worthwhile that we just kind of tossed in I think what really helped to crystallise those optional rules was the playtest stuff, but we can talk about that later. Yes. Yeah. I want to go back to the the, the phrase... That yeah, the, the rules fade into the background. Yeah, and the game is so good because the rules fade into the background and we don't notice them. No, I fuck that. That's That really annoys me. Well, apart from anything else, you know, my personal opinion is that's pretty disingenuous. That, you know, when people say that, what they actually mean is that the rules are fairly simple and they're used to them. And they're useless. What is the point of having rules that do nothing? If they fade into the background and I don't even notice I'm using them, why are they there? Yeah, why not just freeform? Yeah. I can, I can remember playing a game outside uh, with you, Scott, around the bonfire, or two bonfires. You know that time with Jeff and Steph and Lucy? Oh, yes. Polaris, was it? No, no, it was a Cthulhu game. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. We, we didn't roll dice. Or, or, you know, maybe, you know, you'd get to an end of a session and you'd say, oh, that was great. Do you know what? We didn't you roll the dice once this evening. Yeah, it's not to say we didn't have a great time and, and everything. Yeah, but what did the rules do? So you can have a great game just freeforming. Yes. So that's fine. You can do that. And no, no problem with that. But if you're going to have the rules, rather than just have them do nothing, that to me sort of says they're a bit pointless have them such that they kind of push the story forward, that they help you escalate the, the, the tension in the game and escalate the, the story. So if I hear you correctly, what you're saying is if you want a good role-playing experience, you shouldn't bother buying any rules. <laughs> you no. See, you're, you're both coming from... You're, you're both talking about the same thing, but you're talking at slightly at odds. So, Paul, what you're saying is the rules fade into the background means there are no rules. Yeah, the rules aren't are, are well. They aren't doing much. They aren't right? doing. They aren't any... doing much to help the game. They aren't doing anything to help the game. Whereas Scott, what you're saying is the rules fade into the backgrounds means that um, the, the you're so used to the rules, you're not even thinking you're yeah. using them. They're second nature. And um, and so I think they are slightly different things. And I, I I agree with both the sentiments to degree. But I think what it tends to be meant on the interwebs is. The rules fed into background is because we're just so familiar after playing this game for 30 years. So if you mention rules to people, they're like, oh, <laughs> I don't want any of those rules. Yeah. Well, actually, you've been using rules all, every time you play. you just forgotten yeah. that you were. Yeah, I mean, if you want to be reminded of that, play Call of Cthulhu, you know, even an old version of it, with someone who's never played Call of Cthulhu before. You have rules to explain to them. They will take time to learn them. You'll see that someone has to absorb all this in the first place. But at the same time, I appreciate the fact that it's, it was always a fairly easy thing to have somebody who had never role-played before, or never played Call of Cthulhu at least, and they'd sit down and you could just point to the sheet and say, roll under your spot hidden, or what do I do? Just pick up the dice and roll that, that number there, you just got to roll equal to or under it. And that was a very easy thing to grasp, generally, but then of course, as we said, there were spot rules that kind of complicate that. But it's yeah. a pretty, as, as role-playing games go, it's a pretty easy one to, 
you know, get people into And I think it still is, because it's Hopefully. what's still on the sheet is the same thing. I was going to say, it was called BRP for a reason. It is basic role-playing. Yeah, I'd, I'd actually call BRP rules medium. There are much lighter systems out there. Yeah, it's not. I think the, the gold book is testament to the fact that it's not basic. I can almost argue against that in that, at its core, it is, as you said, pick up the dice, roll equal to or under that skill, done. Just all the bolt-on rules after that. Yeah, it, that's it, the... And at the end of the day, what rules are, apart from being a formal mechanism to how you play a particular game, is they provide the keeper with tools. They also provide the player with tools as well, but mm. predominantly in, in this type of role-playing game, provides the keeper with a set of rules and defined things to do. What happens if X happens? This rule helps me and tells me what I should do at that point. So, you know, the, they have a place in the, in the game. We've talked about the fact that you wanted to, you know, preserve the fact that this is Call of Cthulhu, but make a few changes here and there to speed things along or, you know, uh, make it easier to engage with. Were there any particular lines in the sand you had as far as things you were never going to change in Call of Cthulhu? <laughs> I think there were, for me, there were phrases, kind of keywords that have got to stay in there. So we got to retain uh, sanity roles. We got to retain spot hidden, things library like that, use. that. Library use. Again, if you were coming up with a new game, you wouldn't necessarily use those terms. We could have, we could have gotten rid of spot hidden and just had detect, uh, detect or re uh, or um, notice, observe, mm -hmm. notice, things like that. But spot hidden, it, that. You know, Spot Hidden is really the only time I've heard Spot Hidden is when I'm playing Call of Cthulhu. And so that, just that word kind of triggers Call of Cthulhu in my, in my mind, all those two words. On the other hand, Fast Talk, I was kind of happy to get rid of, but it came back again. Yeah, I, I, like how Paul feels about Spot Hidden, I feel about Fast Talk. So that's yeah. <laughs> how things marry, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't think there was anything um, specific in terms of this thing for me, it was the entirety. It was it had to remain and feel Call of Cthulhu. Yeah, I think you know that that was underwhelming, overwhelmingly. Sorry, overwhelmingly the the drive. Certainly, you know, for me, and I'm pretty sure for Paul too, um, that that it had to remain Call of Cthulhu. And we could have wacky ideas and crazy rules and stuff like that. That's all great because we're in, we're developing it and and trying things out. But ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, I always knew at some point there would be a playtest involving other people. And I always knew if anything was really wacky, that we would get that back. And so I, I was always aware that, you know, at some point there would be a reckoning, you know, in terms of how people you know, react to some of the newer things that, uh, that, were, that were coming out. That's part of the process for any game development, whether it's a new game or a, or a revision of a game. Uh, but ultimately, it had to remain Call of Cthulhu. The early iterations of the rules were a lot further out there and you know it was a way of kind of toning down the more out there aspects of it and at the same time making them more like Call of Cthulhu you know the Call of Cthulhu yeah. we knew to, sometimes to you've got to, sometimes you've got to the feel of the game you've got to you know you've got to fly to the moon to get to kind of get the idea and the and the notion but be aware, you know, you, you've actually got to dial it back at some point. Yeah. Once you've actually worked out where you're heading and realised actually that, that was veering off in a different direction. But actually, just off, just after takeoff, actually, that was a sweet spot. Yeah. Or whatever it might be. You know. and, and, and sometimes just supplementary bits and pieces that were explored, like strength rating for various weapons, 
ultimately, they weren't really going to add anything to the game. So just complicated. I mean, I'm one, not even one, sure I put those to you. But. One, one, yeah, I mean, often we had conversations about overcomplicating the rules. Yeah. Uh, because it's such an easy thing to do. And I remember yeah. you, you repeating it back to me a month later and saying the same thing. You know, you knew yeah, yeah. You, the penny had dropped in your head and, and you were saying, oh, it's so easy to really complicate things, isn't it? I mean, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's the easiest thing in the world. And we see it constantly with... even even Only yesterday I was working on a chapter and thinking about snake poisons and this group of snakes and how it could affect people and putting in one or two rules. In, and I thought, no, 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 just yeah. just keep it simple. It just does damage. Just to wrap up the discussion of the origins of this project, do you want to go into a, a bit more detail about how you pitched this to Chaosium and what their initial reaction was? Yeah, there was a uh, we were at the Continuum convention, a uh, weekend convention in Leicester, and uh, Mike, you were. Uh, let me see now. Who was giving the the talk? Was it Charlie giving the talk? Charlie was doing a seminar. And I, I think, and I said I'd go and have a chat with him afterwards and see if we'd be open to have a conversation with both. So we managed to corner him after the after the um, after his seminar, and uh, you know sat down with him for a few minutes and put the idea to him, and he was quite receptive. Yeah, uh, yeah, because I mean, as I said before, we I'd had the conversation about doing yeah, the audition, yeah. and and it was something he already wanted to happen. Yeah, and we were quite kind of uh, invested in it at that point. Uh, we were really kind of keen for him to, to take it on. Yeah. Um, but one of the things he did ask was, could we run a, a an example for him later in the day? <laughs> and do you remember? And I was like, yeah. well, yes, Charlie. But we, I wasn't really prepared for it. Now I've got something kind of half-assed kind of prepared. But it never happened. And it was probably just as well, because the stage that it was at then was so far away from where it, where it sort of got to. Yes, um, it yeah. might, might have killed that, the project dead at yeah, that stage. Well done, actually. <laughs> yeah, it was very experimental at the time, wasn't it? The, yeah, the, where where things were, it was very much kind of ideas and a few a few things more defined, but not in any you know, great way, any sense, was it? Um, yeah, no, it, was, it would have been. Yeah. <laughs> it would have been. It would have been very different, much much more different than than the version we see now compared to previous editions of Cold. If, if I remember it rightly, though, what we. I think what happened just over the course of the convention as we, we, we were hanging with Charlie throughout the convention thereafter mm. anyway. Um, and we, well, we didn't discuss anything in specific terms. We were, you know, both he and us were throwing, you know, some ideas back and forth to yeah. that degree. And, you know, just say, oh, we, you know, wouldn't it be cool if this was in the book now? Or or why did why was that in there and, and that kind of stuff? So, so that was kind of a useful exercise. I think that helped to somewhat, Charlie, to shape the, the framework to some degree as well. There was there was a moment in the bar, that I, I specifically remember you, you and I chatting privately, and we were talking about would we ever get paid for doing this and how much work it would be? <laughs> and uh, we both said, okay, <laughs> we might never, never get, this might never get published, we might never get paid for this, are we both happy with that? And we both said, yeah. Yeah. We're going to do it anyway. Yeah. Yeah, because it was, it was, I think we both had a, a, a drive because we knew we could produce a an edition of Call of Cthulhu that would that we felt would be um an enhancement or improvement or however you want to term it on on where things are just from the basis of of um incorporating the things that not just us but other keepers around the world were doing 
Yeah. And saying it's formalising that to some degree. And that's just reminding me of one one little gem that Charlie that Charlie said, or, or that we put to him, and you said uh, something about uh, you know we 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 could produce the rule book. Uh, you know, Charlie, if you're not interested, you didn't say this as a threat, but you sort of said, oh, you know, if, if you're not interested in it, you know, maybe we'll publish it ourselves on, uh, as something different. And he was very like, oh, no, 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 I want what you're doing. So yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. He was, he very, was clear. very keen. And we kept coming, kind of coming back to kept that. Kept asking the question, you know, are you sure, you know, where we're going is right and, and, and you know, and, and you want this? And um, now, as from day one, he was crystal clear that he, he was keen for us to do it. He was keen that he wanted... Um, a new edition. And the second thing that, that the kind of spoken contract between you and I, Mike, was that another thing you said was that anything that goes in the book, we've both got to be happy with. Yeah. And that was kind of a fundamental yeah. spoken agreement between us. That yeah, because it wouldn't work otherwise. It just wouldn't work. Was, it was agreed yeah. by both of us. Yeah. And that was how it came out. Yeah. Well, as I think is somewhat commonplace for us, we've taken a topic and found that we can ramble on quite a lot longer than we thought we were going to. I, I blame Mike. I blame you. you yeah, we, when, when can I get out of these handcuffs? <laughs> <laughs> we don't normally have this problem, Mike. <laughs> we have guests leaping to get on the show. <laughs> Do we? <laughs> yes, yes, there's cues of them outside. Le- leaping like a tractor fish. <laughs> I think that might be coming up in part two. <laughs> Foreshadowing. <laughs> but no, that, that concludes part one of our discussion on the origins of Cthulhu, um, Call of Cthulhu 7th edition. I think we'll have to pick up part two. We'll leave it there then. So it's good night from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Bye-bye from me. Blasphemous Tomes.com mm-hmm.